bad news from the zones, Tumbleweeds. My chemical romance are still broken up. And we are still not okay. Trust me, I'm Trevor Ickrath. And I'm Ben Pitt. And Ben, we are back. Trevor, we're back. It took so long. It's been almost a year. I think our first episode was in June of 2018. Yeah, it's been far too long. I've had a crazy life over the past year. Things are a little different now. You don't live in Los Angeles anymore. You're in San Diego. Yeah. I live in your old apartment, which is kind of weird. You do live in my old apartment, which was cool. I got $100 for you moving into my old apartment. Nice. Fortunately, one thing has remained the same. We are both still really big fans of My Chemical Romance. 100%. When Spotify did their uh, year wrapped up, all five of my top five songs were My Chemical Romance songs. So I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense why I do this podcast. Should we touch on anything that's been happening with the band since our last episode came out? There's been like a bunch of Gerard activity. Yeah, Gerard has released like several songs some of which are real bangers and some of which feature a, um like who 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 was on it ray toro or frankie Euro? i think they've ray toro was on uh hazy shade of winter and i believe mikey plays bass on a different song cool i can't remember if it's getting down with the germs or not getting down with the germs is my personal favorite that one is really good i like that one a lot that flute solo just makes me so happy mm-hmm. that's got some interesting arrangements probably like most importantly though uh gerard has like two tv shows now kind of yeah he, he has one that he's like pretty directly involved in which is umbrella academy yep that's on netflix gerard kind of touches on that a lot i don't know how much you've watched the show if any i i've watched the first two episodes uh in the last two days it's really good i know you've watched the whole season right i've watched the whole season there's a couple really cool gerard songs in it at really key moments and that's really awesome to hear i was gonna say that if this were i haven't gotten to any of those gerard related songs yet but if this show were by anybody else than like the guy from my chemical romance you would definitely see like a three cheers song pop up in one of these fight scenes 100 percent, definitely that's all i could think of while listening to this album the last couple days like this would be really good in a fight scene from the umbrella academy yeah Actually, that's that's super true. I'm looking forward to making my way through the rest of that show, but I'm looking forward more to talking about this album with you. Yeah, this is probably going to be our most important episode because this is their most important album. I've been debating that recently because I, I definitely agree with you, but I feel like there's a bigger fan base for Black Parade and that in like 2019, the Black Parade is like more so than ever the album that it's looking like they'll be remembered for. Like, that got a big deluxe edition reissue, like, last year or the year before that, right? We didn't get any kind of anniversary release for Three Cheers. That's very true. But at the same time, anyone who's, like, a real MyChem fan will probably put this album over Black Parade, but... Ben the Gatekeeper. I like it. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I think that might be a a Black Parade question, because it definitely feels like it's between those two. Right. Although, spoilers for future episodes... Neither of those albums are my favorite My Chemical Romance album. Mm-hmm. I know this about you. I know this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you want to get into uh, talking about sort of where we left the boys? Sure. Uh, after after Bullets, they went on a big extensive tour to support it, right? Mm-hmm. One that sounds like it was kind of tough on the band. Definitely. Gerard was sort of steadily becoming more and more an alcoholic yeah in service of this episode i started reading a biography uh, about the band that i can't remember the name of it right now but his descent into alcoholism and drug use and substance abuse really plays like a big part in this like phase of the band like he started to feel like he needed to be taking all these drugs in order to become the performer that he needed to be which is like 
obviously a really unhealthy thing to establish when you're the lead singer of a band. Especially a band called My Chemical Romance. It's a little... Yeah. yeah. It's a little... It's pretty fitting. I just watched Life on the Murder Scene, that documentary, which we should probably spend a whole episode talking about at some point yeah i want to do a whole episode about it so i didn't go back to it in preparation for this but i'm interested to see what you learned there well i learned a lot and some stuff's going to come out just for context of of what we're talking about one of which is just they had a lot of film crews around at that time and there are multiple videos of gerard just like stumbling drunk like there's one part where he just like pukes in the bushes tries to take a couple steps, and then falls onto the pavement in, like, a parking lot. I distinctly remember seeing a clip from that documentary years ago where they're all playing kickball, I think. Yes. And it's clear that Gerard is super fucked up. Gerard and Frank are both shit-faced. And it's, like, funny in that scene, but it's so not funny in context. And he also started taking antidepressants and then painkillers. I have a great quote from Gerard about his substance abuse from those days. He said, I was crazy all the time. I'd get the shakes if we relate to a show because I had to start drinking immediately. There were times in the van where I'd pull a knife just because I was excited. Jesus. That, yeah. That does sound very like Bullets era Mike. Yep. Something that was I wanted to touch on that was great about that uh, the biography I'm reading is that every now and then there are just like contextless quotes intercut with like the text that like are apropos of nothing. Like there's one from there's one that I wanted to read where Gerard says, I think any world that was perfect would probably be destroyed very quickly. <laughs> That's very Gerard. Yeah. Very like, especially like 2001 to 2004 Gerard, which is where we're, where we're looking right now. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's sort of crazy. So I, one thing I also learned about in this documentary was how early major record labels were hounding them. They were pretty big in Jersey from the start. And we should talk about this too, because this is around the time where they left Eyeball Records and signed to, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I've seen it both ways. Reprise, Reprise Records. What do you say? I think it's Reprise Records, but I don't know. I say Reprise. Okay. Well, this way, between you and me, we'll cover both bases. Nice. And I have a quote from the band about signing to Reprise Records. So let me read that. They said, we will always be an eyeball records band. The support, dedication, and love from that label got us where we are right now. And we did it as a family. I wanted to be the first to tell you before the gossip and the hearsay. I wanted to shout it from the street lamps to the coils. In every fucked up slum, where every seedy club lives and breathes, we are coming to your town. We are taking back what's ours. We're all in this together. And by the way, we've signed a reprise and we are fucking ready for the world to hear us scream. (laughs) That's a great, great quote. I I wonder, though, what their former group of post-hardcore buddies thought of this move and what they must have thought of Three Cheers as a whole. Because if you go back to that documentary we talked about last time, things that make you go, hmm... A lot of them seem like they weren't super on board with the record. Yeah, I'm very curious what those people think. I can remember sitting in chat boards for My Chemical Romance when I was like 13 and 14. And at this point, Black Parade was out and as big as it ever was. And there were people in there going, this band was shit after Bullets, but Bullets was so good, I'm still on this chat board. So They really went pop. Like They're still like a punk band for sure, but there's such a like pop sheen to their songwriting now. And I think you can attribute a lot of that to them working with a new producer, Howard Benson. Yeah. Howard Benson was very influential on this album from what I can tell. There's a really interesting part with him in the doc where he talks about just basically having to teach them song structure and how to write songs. Yeah. And that's, I think what sets these songs apart from 
the songs on bullets the most because all the songs on bullets are like they're really out there and they're going for it so much so that they're not really paying attention to song structure Mm -hmm. those songs will go from like point a to point b to point c to point d without ever going back to any of the previous points which is kind of unusual for songs very true those songs are just like labyrinths and that really worked for that version of the band here though all the songs have these really big hooks and choruses and every other part of the song is kind of working in service to make those bigger moments even bigger whenever they come back up that's very true i don't know i I, do you think they went too far the other way to too polished to too committed to a structure i've been trying to decide that for myself no i i think it works on this album for the most part there's probably one or two songs that stray a little closer to the bullets formula Mm -hmm. that i'll touch on when we get to them but i like this as like mcr is like pop punk record definitely like i almost i almost see like the pitch for this record being like okay we were a post-hardcore band on the last record but for this new one we're gonna take this pop punk thing that's blowing up right now and we're gonna paint it black and cover it in fake blood and we'll, we'll basically be the new cure uh except instead of singing about wanting to kill ourselves we'll sing about wanting to kill other people like a thousand other people a thousand evil men <laughs> so that satan will reunite us with our our dead wives who's also an allegory for our grandma yeah yeah yeah. can't (laughs) wait to talk about that i can't wait to talk about i'm really excited speaking of the fake blood thing one thing that came up was how tired they were of fake blood by the time they were done getting ready to promote this album oh i could imagine i can imagine it was mostly not their idea it was just like they were that band and then when they got to like films or uh shooting sets for different magazines and stuff they were just all like, so we were kind of thinking of a fake blood angle. And it's like, well, here's three other magazines that have that same thought. And they're like, yeah, well, we really only had this idea. So we're also going to do blood. I can see why they wanted to make such a stark departure from this stuff once they eventually got onto the Black Parade. Because yeah, their first two, it felt like if they would have done that again for a third album, they seriously would have like outworn It's Welcome. Definitely. I I feel like going forward, I'm going to be very hard on this album and very hard on some of these songs. And that's like, only because it means so much to me. Okay, that's good because I have a, like, when I return to this record, I've gone through a lot of phases with this record. I mean, this was the first My Chemical Romance album that I listened to. Mm-hmm. It was what introduced me to the band. And I've gone through phases where it's my favorite and where it's not my favorite and I think it's kind of overrated. And then I, like, spend enough time apart from it and I fall in love with it again the next time I check it out. And this episode of this podcast happened to catch me in one of those periods where, like, I love this record. I think it was probably their most successful project, if not necessarily my favorite. Personally, I would call it my favorite, but even when it's not my favorite, I think they hit the target here closer than on any of their other records. I love this album as a whole, but I think I might love this album as a whole a little bit more than I do the parts that make up the album. I think that's fair. One thing I want to touch on with Howard Benson working with the song structure was uh, particularly with cemetery drive and i know i'm jumping ahead but apparently when they recorded that song there wasn't a final chorus after the bridge before the outro and howard benson like was like oh you should sing another chorus and they were like no we know what we're doing there's no other chorus there and then he mixed it and just repeated the chorus one more time when mixing it and showed it to them and they were like oh wait you're right it's better But then Gerard said something interesting in the doc, which was that they sort of used that structure to write five or six more songs that ended up on the record. And I do think that that kind of shows where it's like, there's like a good half of this record that kind of feels like it was written in the same structure. And I think that when you're listening to it as a whole, 
that works really well. And when you're listening to individual songs or like those particular songs, it doesn't necessarily work as well on its own. I don't think I can disagree with what you're saying. Some of these songs definitely do feel kind of formulaic. Yeah. It's not totally obvious, but there are signs that this is like a band's first album that they're making when they really have gotten a grip on what songs are. Yeah, exactly. Well, like Bullets, they were literally writing songs in the van on the way to the recording studio that morning and then recording them. And those were songs that were on the record. So this is a much different project for them in that respect. I also wanted to talk about how this record was recorded in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. Whereas the first one was, you know, in that dude's mom's basement in New Jersey. Yeah. And I think the difference is really, that's that's another difference you can really see in the songs because Mm -hmm. whereas like the ones on Bullets are really like kind of rootsy and like grungy and dark and dirty these ones are like super polished and really like kind of glitzy and like very hollywood it's almost like this horrible show that you can't look away from that's absolutely true and they're also just a band that has played together now they've they toured all over the world they toured in the u.s they toured in europe and they were really popular apparently really popular in europe the the story i heard was that they arrived in Germany as this unknown band, and by the time they got to Spain, fans had homemade t-shirts waiting for them. Cool. So they were blowing up all over the world. And you can tell that the practice has done wonders for the band. Like, I think everybody's performance has improved here. Definitely. Especially, like, um, I want to talk about them a lot in this episode, actually. Our good friend Otter, Matt Pillis here. Yeah, I couldn't find that many details about him online like he's sort of an enigma to me so if you were able to dig up some i didn't really look up too much about him but i just it's his performances that i want to talk about because like i don't maybe i should just say it now remember on our first episode we talked about how like mikey was kind of the unsung hero of those bullet sessions Mm -hmm. i think the same might be true for otter on three cheers i don't know if he decided to step it up or if he was or if his style was just more well suited to like these songs I'm kind of like drifting towards the latter, but I, I just think he's the MVP here. And like, this was the record that Matt Pills here was like born to play on. Sure. I think we should probably say it out front too. This is the last record that he'll play with the band on. And he was like kicked out even before like the tour for this one started. And even before they like filmed the music videos too, right? Correct. So they finished recording the album and then went to tour in Japan while the album was mixed at the studio. Basically, Otter never came back from Japan. I mean, as a part of My Chemical Romance, that he they kicked him out in Japan. And I, I got that info, but I couldn't find what happened. Like, they've been pretty hush-hush about it. And considering Otter and Gerard were the ones that started the band, it wouldn't shock me if it was some big falling out. And it also wouldn't really shock me if it was partially Gerard's fault due to his drug and alcohol abuse problems it sounds like from that book i started reading otter really started drifting away from the rest of the band to the point where it was like ruining the atmosphere between all of them like it sounded like it was everybody against otter Mm -hmm. which is just it's a bummer right it's a real bummer so here's the story i learned from the doc which is that they go to japan they kick otter out they pretty much immediately call their new drummer who would go on to be their drummer for the next couple years bob Breyer, who was uh the sound guy for the used who they'd gone on tour with and he had been their sound guy for their european tour and they had actually become good friends bob agreed to do the european tour for free because he was he was available and he just liked the guys so much and it sounds like they were sort of already thinking about 
letting him into the band and replacing Otter with him when they went to Japan. Yeah, I actually have a quote from Bob about like that time in the band. He said, uh, the mood of the band was horrible. They weren't like a real band who enjoys being on stage together or doing anything anymore. After a show, he would go off on his own. Not to talk shit or anything, but he was kind of an asshole. We started talking like, man, I wish I played drums in your band. So it sounds like they had made the choice even before the choice was made. Yeah, it sounds like it started with him going, I wish I played drums in your band, and then started to be, man, we wish you played drums in our band. And then, hey, do you want to play drums in our band? Yeah. Poor Otter, man. But, I mean, maybe it was for the best, because while I think he is a great fit for this album, I don't know if he could have really gone to where they were going on Black Parade and so forth. Maybe... He would have worked on Danger Days. I could see that kind of happening, but even that is a little too slick and tight for his style. The way he plays on this album is like a crazy assassin, just kind of like haphazardly wielding an Uzi. And just like, I know I know he gets a lot of flack for how much he loves those machine gun drum fills, but that's the sound of the album. You know, this is a record about gunning people down. It works. Yeah. Like Gerard, I feel like is always going to be the most tuned in to the project out of all the guys in the band. But here it feels like Otter was the closest to working on his level. I can see what you mean. Otter's drums definitely make this album pull it tight and like cinch it together. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of creative stuff that I'll want to touch on as we get to. I'm just, you're right. I'm not sure he's the right drummer for Black Parade. I don't know. This band has just had a long storied career of never finding the right drum. That's true. Yeah. So their album is pretty much an overnight success. Three Cheers for Three Revenge outsold Bullets on the first day. Yep. And by the end of the first week, they had sold 11,000 copies. Good job, boys. Yeah, good for them. And they were just like, apparently their producer and Gerard would just keep getting calls from people like, yep, it's doing really well. Guys, it's doing really well really well which is like a nice change of pace because i know that like they were a little frustrated by like how little eyeball records were ultimately able to do for them like it was a big jump up between like not a lot of people even having access to bullets to like just being able to go into a store and see three cheers on the rack yeah apparently that was their biggest problem and it wouldn't shock me if their biggest reason to jump on reprise was they literally just didn't have enough records to sell on tour and no one could find their records anywhere so they people would go see them live love them and then never get to hear their music again because bullets was so hard to find at this point so i wonder if they still to this day think of themselves as an eyeball records band it wouldn't shock me if gerard thought of my chemical romance as an eyeball records band at the same time i could see like asking gerard like hey do you still think of mcr as an eyeball records band and he just goes like what's that yeah, that's... Alex Saavedra who? Yeah, that's yeah. that could also happen. <laughs> so let's talk... I touched on it a little earlier, but I wanted to talk to you about the concept behind this record, because we mentioned it in our first episode. Mm-hmm. But I have heard so many kind of conflicting reports, even from like multiple Gerard interviews, about what the concept really is. It's such a loosely defined concept. A little bit, yeah. My understanding of it has always been that it's a continuation of the story from the first one about the demolition lovers, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde couple who like go around committing crimes and killing people uh, and eventually meet their own end in the desert in some gunfight at the end of bullets. Mm -hmm. The version that I've heard the most has been that after they, they both die in the gunfight, but after he dies, the guy is visited by the devil who tells him, I'll bring you back to life. If you kill a thousand evil men for me, and once you do it, I'll even like throw in the girl too. She'll come back and you can be together again. And he's like, yeah, totally. 
Let me at them. I mean, they're evil men, right? So Yeah, they're evil men. You know, I'm an evil man. I'll kill the evil men. Everything will be great. We'll be together again. We'll laugh again. We'll dance again. We'll cry again. Whatever. Yeah. So is that is that how you understand it too? Or have you heard like something different? That's pretty much all I've ever been able to hear from it. It's very much like multiple songs sort of work together to make the actual concept work. I feel like this isn't their strongest concept, even though it's the one that took two records to tell. No, it feels like a lot of the songs are only kind of tangentially related. And some of them almost like the most you can relate them them to the concept is like, okay, this song has like a mood that feels appropriate for this part of the narrative. Like Helena is kind of like Gerard giving us like a look at how the demolition lover is like missing his like dead wife, how that's similar to how Gerard is missing his dead grandmother. Like those are like equal versions of pain and that's how you get it. Yeah. That seems to be my understanding as well. Like they were just like, let's create a mood that kind of tells this story. And then let's like have a couple lines that fit in with what we're trying to tell, but they never really committed to making a concept record. No, it kind of seems like concept records weren't really being done. So they were sort of trying to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, around this time, Green Day did release American Idiot. Well, they also toured with Green Day at the same time as this album came out. So like, this is the same era. And during the three cheers era, they were on tour. You just, you know, black shirt, and red tying it up together. Yep. That's true. Similar aesthetics. So it wouldn't shock me if green day is the one that really gave them the guts to commit to the concept record. I could see that happening for sure. All right. So I think we're just about ready to jump into like three cheers for street revenge, but I'd first like to just take a second and thank all the fans who've been super supportive of us over the past year. Yeah, totally. Like, um, in the year it's taken us to record the second episode, not a month has passed without somebody saying, like, hey, when's the second episode is still not okay going to happen? Yeah, and that's just been so good and to hear and so heartening and heartwarming. Uh, so thank ev- thank you to everyone who's listened and is excited about episode two and still going to tune in and keep telling all your friends about it because we're really happy to do it and we're really happy to be back and just thank you guys. Three cheers for our great listeners. All right, so let's start the name of the album, the album cover. Your thoughts? Probably some of the band's best work. I, like, I don't know if anything tops these. Three cheers for Sweet Revenge. What a great phrase. What a great album title. I think it's great. It's got to be in my top five album names of all time. Like, it's it's tight. It's fun, but dark in a way that fits the band. It's so good. And Gerard's art on the cover of the guy and the bride are, I mean... Oh my gosh, yeah. Such a step up from Bullets, where, like, I'm barely even sure what I'm, what I'm looking at, to, some like, such a striking, iconic image. Like... It's awesome. It was the background on my laptop for most of my early teens because it's just such a striking image. And like, I tried to draw that and practice drawing it over and over and over again, and I just never got it right. But it's so good. It's so iconic of the era. It's so indicative of the time they came out of. Like, It's my favorite album title and my favorite album cover, and it's not close. And it's it's so evocative, too. Like, who are these people? Why are they covered in blood? Like, what's going on here? I want to I figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. It's an album that jumps off the shelf and, like, begs to be listened to just looking at it. I just don't know if it would ever get this good again. I don't know that any band might get that good again. Like, it's a tough, it's a tough bar. All right, so let's, let's jump into the track, starting with one of the biggest singles from the album and my third favorite song on the record, Helena. Uh. Like 
it's really good. Uh, not my third, but just, just barely not in my top three. It is so good. I just have such a love for another song on this that edged it out of my number three. Mm-hmm. It's such a big departure from Bullets, and it kicks off the album. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about it as an album opener because I, I, I like it a lot as a first song on a record, but I don't like the way it begins as a beginning to a record. And I like have always racked my brain over like what would be a better start to this album. And I think the solution that I finally came to was like, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if they took that guitar piece from the last record, Romance? Which, following our recording of that episode, I learned was like not an original piece of music. It's like a classical guitar composition from like the 19th century. Okay, that makes sense. What if they took that and like rearranged it to be like an organ piece? Like you're at like a funeral or something. Yeah. And like they retitled it Revenge. And so like you get the first album starts with Romance. You get the second album starts with a callback to that intro, Revenge. And then like after it like comes to completion, then Helena kicks in. I think that would be pretty badass. I'm so into that. I love that. I really like the idea of having an intro also just because there's an interlude later. So I think it would make sense to ease into the album. I think it also would have been a really nice shout out to Eyeball Records in general and their first record, I think that would have been really sick. I mean, I'm happy with what we got, but I also agree that it's a weird way to start an album with that quiet whisper of like, there have definitely been more than one time where I'm like, oh, is it loud enough? And then the drums kick in. I'm like, oh God, too loud, too loud. (laughs) It's almost like they did that on purpose. It wouldn't shock me if they did that on purpose. But the drums in the song are probably my favorite in a My Chemical Romance track. The way Eider comes in with that really subtle like... And then he really goes hard with those machine gun fills as the chorus hits. Uh And when that chorus hits, it's like a tidal wave happens and like you're immersed in water and everything goes in a slow motion as the band shifts in a halftime. Like that's one of my favorite things they've ever done. That like tempo shift where everything just kind of goes in a slow motion for the chorus of Helena. Really good. Yeah. Everything on this song works. It's probably... It was it was definitely my first favorite My Chemical Romance song. Like I heard this song and went, "Yep, this is a band that I'm gonna like." I ended up buying Bullets first, but I had YouTube and I had this music video, and I watched it on repeat so many times. Like I just love this song. I love the name. I know it's his grandma's name, but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it was a cool old timey name. It wasn't her name actually, Elena, and people called her Helen. So he kind of merged them together for this one. Oh, is that right? Am I misremembering that? That's entirely possible. I wanted to talk about the death of his grandma because it really took a pretty powerful toll on Gerard. Yeah. Like, apparently she died, like, a day after he got off the Bullets tour. So he really beat himself up a lot because he missed the last year or so of her life. Like, I almost see some of the lyrics in this song as Gerard tearing into himself a little. Like, uh, uh, at the worst, you take from every heart you break makes me think of like this quote I read of him talking about how he would always like run his ideas by her. And he felt how like, uh, by losing her, he was really losing an important part of his creative process. So like, I can see him going like, she did so much for you. And what did, what the fuck did you do for her, man? You know, you weren't even around when she died. You were off getting drunk with your dumbass vampire band. You fucking dumbass you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely an easy way to like beat yourself up. And I can definitely feel that in this song. Let's just talk about the music video. There were like three big videos for this phase. There was like this, there was I'm Not Okay, and then there was The Ghost of You. And they came out 
I'm Not Okay, Helena, and Ghost of You. And Helena really established the look of the band. I mean, apparently they just stole the outfits from this music video shoot and took them on tour. I like that. They literally only had one set, and apparently they, like, rarely, if ever, washed and cleaned them. So they were just, like, a real stinky band. Great. Which apparently drove their manager crazy. (laughs) And so he would, like, come in and Febreze their stuff before they went on stage because he just thought it was so disgusting. Very punk. Yeah, it was very punk rock. But Gerard has, like, such a distinct look in this one. Like, he's really got, like, the undead kind of thing going. It was a really interesting thing talking about that video in the doc. Gerard starts talking about how he could not handle watching the dancer portraying his grandmother do that dance scene. Like, he literally had to walk out of the room. Uh Uh-huh. And the part when he's, like, walking down the steps carrying the coffin, that, like, pained, teary face is totally real. He is breaking down he does some powerful emoting in this video like he's really out there yeah and it's apparently all real which doesn't really shock me in the song you wrote to honor your dead grandma yeah it sounds like he had a lot of pain to channel into this performance and he channeled it in like really visibly the music video is also still really fun though Mm -hmm. yeah like i mean you've got the dance in the middle which apparently is what something mikey pushed for because mikey was very much the one who stepped in and was like if this is a total downer from start to finish our grandma would have hated that. Oh, that's nice. I can. I like that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And Mikey really seemed to be the heart, the one to pull them through that. It feels like it's always been important for My Chemical Romance to like have a heart. They've never really stopped making that like an integral part of the My Chemical Romance experience. Yeah. There's going to be some real bummers, but like you're going to come away from it as like a, a stronger person emotionally. It's like, hey, look, we're having a bummer time. You're having a bummer time. But if we both commiserate together, we'll get through it. And we'll be okay. Like, this is very much like an anti-depression band. Absolutely. Like, it was an antidepressant for the band members, as well as meant to be an antidepressant for the people who heard it. And they were very, like, cognizant of that. You're getting ahead of me, because I have a lot of this stuff in my notes, but it's for a little down the road. I'm going to keep it in my pocket for a little bit. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's talk about this next song, uh, Give Em Hell Kid. My number three. This is a really neat one. I, I can see why you like this, because I it's always reminded me of David Bowie for some reason. Interesting. I can totally see that. Like, it, it feels like a real Spiders from Mars track. Especially those, like, a-wah-ohs. That's, like, my favorite part. It's either that or the intro. I just love the bass or guitar intro. I'm not sure what it actually is, but that deep, like... That's Mikey. That's Mikey's bass. It's gotta be, right? Yeah, the intro to this one is great. Although it also kind of drives me a little crazy because I feel like the version of this that's on Spotify has like some background chatter during that part that I don't like that wasn't on my version of the album. Interesting. I don't remember that. There's like little weird tweaks here and there and mixes on these like on the streaming version of this one that like always kind of take me by surprise and I'm not 
really sure like whose decision that is yeah like i said like i don't this was never remastered to my knowledge so like i don't know where those discrepancies come from yeah i'm not sure but that is interesting i'm not sure i've caught that also doesn't this song feel like a better bridge sonically between bullets and their new era i can see that yeah there are a couple songs that feel very bullets this is one of them for sure i tried to create a new track listing for this album that I thought would bridge better between the last album and this album. And I gave up, but it only started with this song. And then I didn't really come up with anything else. I just thought that this would have been an, in another timeline, an interesting way to open the album. Yeah. In my like efforts to kind of find a better way to open the album, since I've never really been a big fan of the way the start of Helena works. Like I've, I have like flirted with the idea of this one being track number one. Overall, I like Helena as a track number one better. Me too. And I like Helena and Give Him Hell Kid almost the same amount. Helena is like a bigger, more popular song, but there's just some about Give Him Hell Kid. It's so punk rock. Yeah. And those wha-uh-ohs are probably just they're my favorite part on this album, maybe. This song has a great bridge, which is like a big thing on this record. A lot of these songs have really colossal bridges Mm -hmm. that are kind of the best parts of the album. I meant to like bring that up when we talked about Helena, because that has one too, with that, like, can you hear me part that goes Mm -hmm. into like when both our cars collide. Like it's like, they really always like to build, 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 build back to that final chorus. And yeah, that's what happened with Howard Benson is he was the one who said, after the bridge, you got to go to a chorus one more time. It's present on almost this entire album because Howard Benson told them early on. There's one song where they don't do it. And like, I can't wait to discuss that with you. So yeah, overall, I have less to say about Give Him Hell Kid, but I definitely love it. I've got a little, I've got some things to say about it. Uh, okay, Gerard yeah. said that this was a song about getting knocked the fuck up. Okay, um, sounds right. It's The title is kind of derived from Frank Iero's tendency to call everybody kid when he's talking to them. I love that. Uh, Gerard references ephedrine in like the opening lyrics, like pump me full of ephedrine. Yeah. Uh, like later the same year that this song was recorded, ephedrine would be outlawed in the United States. Just a little bit of trivia for you. Interesting. That's fun to know. Um, this is the first of several uh, references to cross dressing on the album, where Jordan talks about walking down the street in the best damn dress he owns. Yeah, okay. And uh, interesting. The ending of this song is so good. There's no way I'm fucking kissing that guy. Yeah. I love that. There's a lot of kissing guys on this album, too. It's a very homoerotic album, and we'll talk about that more on a song coming up pretty soon. Yeah, we will. And that comes up with the way they change the outro to this song on Life on the Murder Scene. Are you familiar with this? No. So at the end of the live version on Life of the Murder Scene, Gerard changes the lyrics to just because you're bigger than me, just because you're stronger than me, just because you drive a better car than me does not mean no way, no how I am sucking you off for any amount of money. <laughs> and then the song ends really abruptly. That's that's awesome. That's very it's really good. That's just so good. Yeah, that's so Gerard in this era. This song is definitely about getting loaded and like getting real high and real drunk and just fucking shit up. Yep. And you know what? As detrimental as that was to Gerard's life and as like bad as that can be, it's also very fucking punk rock. Yeah. And this might sound a little insensitive, but like I'm kind of glad Gerard went through that period of his life because like, I don't know, it makes me feel like he's a little more legit uh-huh. i don't know that sounds like really horrible and like toxic but like knowing that he's like dealt with like addiction and stuff like that and that he's like had to crawl his way back up 
and that he like still struggles with it to this day. Like I know that he's seen some demons and like I, I know that he's like been through some stuff. He's not like a guy who's had it easy. I mean, it justifies the fucking band name. Yeah. So I totally get what you mean. It's He's a guy who's had some demons and he needs to have had some demons to make all of this work. Speaking of demons, have you ever thought about this song like in relation to the, the concept, the killing a thousand evil men thing? I've always seen it as like the demolition lover having to like push on even though his wife is dead, you know? And like, uh-huh. I, I don't have you here with me to do this anymore. And if I did, it'd be a lot easier, but you're gone. So now I have to do this thing by myself in order to bring you back. Yeah, definitely that. And also, I always imagine like a really rad train murder scene that would be like in the movie version of this that would be set to this song. Oh, cool. Of him just making his way from like the back of a train to the front, just like killing hordes of like assassins. Yeah, it's got that real like locomotion to it uh-huh. that would like work to be set on a train. I, I read that this was Gerard's favorite song to perform live with the band. Because it made him feel like he was like like strapped to like a jet or something. I totally can see that. Yeah. Also, apparently he used to jump up and down so much during not just this song, but like a bunch of their more upbeat songs that his pants would fall down. Great. And he would be just drunk and not able to pull his pants back up and keep singing. They all sounded like such like interesting performers back in those early days. Yeah. I know Mikey wouldn't move around a lot because he was still kind of like learning his instrument. Yeah. So he would, they, like, they used to joke that he had nails in the bottom of his shoes just because he couldn't move also can i just make a hot take and say this is mikey way's worst haircut era i've never liked mikey way's hair i kind of like it now that he's not in a band where it's just like a normal dude's haircut Mm -hmm. but his hair is just so 2003 in a bad way like he just looks like he really wants to be in the misfits but he's so lanky whereas like the guys in the misfits are ripped and he like has the straightened forelock thing it just doesn't work for me I i see what you mean i mean Look, he needed to look like that in 2003, 2004, but it's, his look is the one that's aged the worst, I feel like. Who had the best haircut at this phase? Was it Ray? Ah, it's gotta be. Well, Ray's never changed, <laughs> so it's not really fair. It's not really fair. Yeah, he found something that worked for him and he stuck with it. I really like Gerard's hair. Yeah, I like Gerard's long, dark hair in this it's one. really I good. wanted long, dark hair because of Helena, and so I have to give it to Gerard. So let's get on to this next song, because this is one I like a lot. It's not like in my top three or anything, but it's a good one. To the end. He calls the mansion, not a house, but a tomb. He's always choking from the stench and the fume. The wedding party all collapsed in the room. So send my resignation to the Yeah, I really like this song. I have a fun story that's also very 2003. Cool. Which is that I can't hear this song without thinking of The Corpse Bride because there was like an AMV set to all the Tim Burton claymation movies that I used to watch with this song. I mean, it's fitting. It is fitting. And it's just, it's very of that era. But so now whenever I hear this song, I think of The Bride 
in the story being the Corpse Bride or looking something like the Corpse Bride. And speaking of the lyrics, like this is one of the first songs in the album of many that has like an absolutely bonkers first verse. Mm -hmm. He calls the mansion not a house but a tomb. He's always choking from the stench and the fumes. The wedding party all collapsed in the room. So send my resignation to the bride and the groom. Let's go down. Yeah. Really good. It's really good. And then it picks up and it's just so catchy. The civil elevator only goes up to 10. He's not around. He's always looking at men. There's more homoeroticism there. Yeah. And like, I think this song is pretty appropriately titled because by like midway through, I'm already exhausted. And it's like a marathon just to get to the finishing notes of this track. Definitely. It does create a problem just to bring up their next album one more time. Have you ever accidentally clicked on to the end when you meant to click on the end? Because I have. Oh, no, I haven't. But I see what you mean. Yeah. It's just weird that they have two songs so similarly titled, but... I'm not against it. It's just kind of a funny little coincidence almost. This is a cool one though. Never been like one of my absolute favorites, but a strong album cut. I do think when Gerard refers to like uh, people as Barbies and Kens, that gets a little too hot topic emo for me. Yeah. You know, that's a little too much like you laugh because I'm different. I laugh because you're all the same. Yeah, that is a little bit tryhardy compared to a lot of the other lyrics on this album. But it's also like really fun and catchy. So... I kind of am willing to forgive it. There's also a line in this song that I never knew and had to look up in prep for this episode, which is, down by the pool, he doesn't have many friends as they're all face down and bloated snap a shot with the lens. Gerard is like, he's, his energy is always on like 11, so it can be easy to miss what he's saying just because like he tends to slur his words together. Like, for example, I always thought the first lyric of this song was, he calls the mansion on a houseboat a tomb. Okay, I love that. That's a great misheard <laughs> yeah. lyric first line. And I've always seen this one kind of playing into the, the demolition story as like him kind of like seducing a married woman and like convincing her to kill her husband so she can be with him, only to then kill her after she does the job. Okay, I like that. I always see this a little differently. I see this as like, some derelict motel or hotel that he is like crashing at while doing his deeds. So it's like almost told from the perspective of like other people that are there and seeing this like weird fucked up guy that is like always looking at men because they might be evil and he's going to kill them. Oh, okay. So I don't know why I always sort of felt it that way of like, obviously not the whole song is from their perspective, but a lot of it is like the people at the pool talking about this weird guy who sort of drifts in and out all the time. I like that as a kind of like narrative framing because I've seen uh, some comparisons drawn between this song and William Faulkner's short story, A Rose for Emily, which is about a woman who poisons her husband. Okay. And I, I think it's kind of told from the perspective of the people in the town, like as if they're telling rumors about it. And like that kind of fits with the perspective that you're saying you hear this song through. Well, it's almost like Edward Scissorhandsy, just to go back to the Tim Burton thing of like sure. them talking about the guy who lives in the mansion. God, 90s Tim Burton could have made a pretty sick adaptation of this album. That's super true. He would have, although Johnny Depp would have played the lead. Oh, yeah. And that probably wouldn't have aged very well. Yep. This also has a nice future shout out to their next album as the last line, which is to the last parade when the parties fade and the choice you made to the end. I noticed that too, and it made me wonder if there was ever a phase where the Black Parade was originally going to be called the Last Parade. It would not shock me in any way, shape, or form, especially from other interviews I've heard that we'll get into in the next episode. Let's get on to the next song, though, because this one feels like a big one. You know what they do to guys like us in prison. Yeah. In the middle of a gunfight In the center of a restaurant 
song is so good when i was a teenager this one would have made my top three me too for sure this is a really cool one and it's another one with an absolutely crazy first verse that really draws you in uh-huh in the middle of a gunfight in the center of a restaurant the bullet through the flock of doves it's perfect the imagery is so tight and so strong and so vibrant and it's so umbrella academy too. really like this one could fit really well in with like one of those gunfights in that show it would not shock me if he was planning umbrella academy as early as this album i almost feel like there's a version of gerard way's future where he kept my comic romance going and that was an album concept and like you would see like you know each member of the band would be a different number and would have a different superpower could totally see that i really like that um there's also a lot of uh good friend of my chemical romance Burt McCracken from The Used. Yeah, I wanted to say that, like, I've always kind of seen this track as, like, a comparison between being in a touring band and being, like, in a gang of criminals. Mm -hmm. But really, it turns out it's a song about getting really drunk with the lead singer from The Used. Yeah, that's exactly what this song is about. And I like that they brought the lead singer of The Used to sing it with them. He sings the bridge, right? The, do you have the keys to the hotel? He does. And he also sings a lot of the... Like, he has a couple, like, lines that he says at the same time as Gerard, but quiet. So if you have, like, really good stereo headphones on, you can hear him during, I think it's the first verse, or maybe it's the first chorus. I can't remember. This song is mixed really distinctly. Like, there's, like, all different kinds of things going on in different channels. Yeah. It, it feels very different from a lot of the other songs in the album, but it still feels so like quintessentially three cheers in a, in a way. Let's talk about Bert though for a second, because I have like quite a few notes on him and a little bit of trivia. How much do you know about this guy? I know a little bit about this guy. I went through a big used phase, but I know that this is a thing that you really like. So I, I sort of let you take the lead on this. I know he was born in Utah and he grew up Mormon, mm-hmm. just like Brendan Flowers from the Killers. Okay. By the way, there's a great anecdote about, uh, about Gerard getting really fucking high on cocaine at a Killers show in that book I read. That's awesome. Uh, but, yeah, he was born in Utah, grew up Mormon. He started seriously clashing with his parents when he became a teenager. He ran away from home and dropped out of school at the age of 16 to live with his girlfriend, Katie. And at 19, he joined the Used. And a few years later, while they were recording their second album, Katie died of a drug overdose while pregnant with his child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this was around the time when he met Gerard, right? And they became, like, really close drinking buddies on tour. Yeah. Well, both of them were sort of came out with their poppy, dark, fun album at the same time. Okay. The used album was In Love and Death, I think is what it's called. Now I can't remember. But that one's very much about the death of his girlfriend and baby, but told in a way that kind of feels very, like, Pan's labyrinthy. Interesting. And it's just a very interesting record that feels tonally pretty similar to Three Cheers, but it's a little bit more rooted in the post-hardcore world. That one is a, I think that one has a pretty cool cover, right? It's all kind of like black and red. Yeah, it's black and white picture of a tree with a 
red heart hung from a noose. Neat. Yeah, it was a pretty cool when I was in high school. <laughs> so they became drinking buddies, uh, and apparently they became so close that uh, members of their fan bases thought that they were sleeping together. Which, well, with all the homoerotic uh, messages on this album, and like the fact that he's featured on the song, you know what they do to guys like us in prison. We could be here talking about it all night. Yes, definitely. And also, just hot take, wouldn't shock me if it was true. No, not at all. I, I just really love this song, though. I really like birth parts. I really like how theatrical the whole thing is. I really like that this one feels the most clear in the narrative of the concept record. The way I see it in fitting in with the concept is like, I've always seen it as the demolition lover allowing himself to be arrested so that he can be thrown in jail and kill every other inmate just to get his like body kind of evil men up. Like, what's that line from Watchmen where Rorschach is in jail and he's like, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. I just really love that. Like first scene in this song. And I would definitely be a scene in like my movie of this concept. It's, it's perfect. And no other band in this genre is doing that kind of stuff. Like you don't see that kind of stuff in like fallout boy tracks, you know? No, no, it's really what set them apart. And it's the kind of thing that makes my chemical romance, my personal favorite pop punk band. It's, it's the comic book nerd and Gerard coming out. Definitely. And I'm a big fat comic book nerd. So exactly. It fits for me. Going back to Bert, though, for a second, I, I also read that eventually they had a falling out, which I can only assume was because like Gerard had to get sober. And like Bert couldn't. Yeah, that feels right. But I, I have a quote from McCracken where he says, I'd prefer not to say anything about my chemical romance, except that we did have a falling out. We don't speak at all anymore. It's got nothing to do with their success. I'm completely comfortable with where our band is at. We used to be very close, but no more. We had a falling out. The rest of my band, they're still mates with all the guys in that band, but I'd prefer to say nothing more about My Chemical Romance. Interesting. And uh, the last time Gerard saw McCracken was at the San Diego stop of Warped Tour 2005. He said we were about to take the stage and he was standing with a megaphone trying to get kids not to watch us. We just hit the feedback and drowned him out. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it was that, I don't know, that's a weird story that I'd like to get more context for. It seems like they just had a really toxic friendship. Yeah. Keep in mind that I did find those quotes from like 2005, 2006. I might not have done my homework like 100%. There could be quotes like from 2013 where like, oh yeah, I hung out with Bert after we got back together and like we're friends now again. But I don't know. Wouldn't shock me either. Feel free to, you know, write in and send us any corrections. Yeah, please let us know. And we'll give you a shout out on the next episode. There's also just a, one more quick thing on uh, My Kim and the Used. There's a really good cover of under pressure oh yeah that really makes it sound like they were fucking right yeah yeah i remember listening to that as a teenager and not being able to tell gerard's and bert's voices apart i couldn't as a teenager either but i've revisited it and i can now also i was at my favorite bar in la and that song came on and it was that version, the MyChem used version. Wow. And I was just so happy. I would never expect to hear that in the wild. I really want to go back and listen to it now. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's really fun and was like my intro into Queen. Bowie didn't come till like years later, but that was kind of how I jumped into like listening to Queen. And that was the first big like My Chemical Romance Queen parallel that we saw. Like they would really lean into that on the black parade, but like that was kind of the first 
time they wore their queen influences on their sleeve definitely yeah unless you count like the guitar solo from like uh head first for halos yeah also fair but still they, they definitely leaned into that sort of feeling which was cool i get queen vibes from this next song too my like number one on the record how could it be anything but i'm not okay i promise It's the best song on the record. It's the best song they've ever written. It's one of the best songs of the last like 20 years as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely like my number one of the mid-aughts. It's probably in my top 10 songs of all time, maybe my top five. It's like the definitive flagship single of that wave of emo. It just like speaks to what that genre was going for more than like any other track that came out of that movement i think like this is it i'm not okay i'm not okay i promise and i love the i promise in parentheses normally i don't love parentheticals in titles like i don't like it on helena for example i think helena is stronger it's just the name you don't need that so long good night but here i like the i promise too and i think it's an a nod to the original title for this song because it was originally titled I promise it's the last time. Interesting. I do like that. Which isn't as good a title as I'm Not Okay, I think. No, it's not. But I like knowing that that's what it was called because I didn't. Yeah. A couple things about this song. Rolling Stone referred to it as a moving anthem for the young and depressed. All Music called it a surging piece of emo pop with a hook as ridiculously catchy as it was ridiculous. And Gerard called it a self-help pop song. And I can't disagree with any of those three quotes. I have a quote up from Frankie Arrow about it too, where he says, Those three minutes and nine seconds were where we belonged. There was a feeling of excitement and fun somehow embedded in those four chords. We must have played it thousands of times in total. And every time I heard that D octave come blaring from stage left, the hair on my neck would stand up. It felt fresh, and I never got sick of it. Honestly, this song is the, the smells like teen spirit for this band. Oh, yeah, and it's the smells like teen spirit of emo in general, I think. Totally agree. And the fact that it's not as famous as Smells Like Teen Spirit feels wrong. And the fact that it's not their most famous song also feels somehow, like, wrong and sad, like the universe got it wrong. It's kind of been usurped by the Black Parade, right? Yeah. Like, they, that feels like the song that they're going to be remembered for. Yeah, and I kind of hate that because I'm Not Okay is a better song, it's a better anthem, and it has a better music video. Oh my god, the, the music video. Probably my number one favorite music video of all time. Like, I this music video fucking changed my life. Like 100%. I went to a prep school. I was a nerd who got picked on. Like this song and this music video was like directed at me. And I think it was directed at a lot of people. I wanted to talk about what I think the best thing about the I'm Not Okay video is. Because, you know, this was basically kind of like an introduction 
of My Chemical Romance to the world. It's almost even kind of like intentionally directed as so, where like it's like a trailer for the band, you know, like for a fake movie, but at the same time for the band. Mm -hmm. I think what's so important about the way it works is that it shows two different versions of My Chemical Romance. Yeah. At school, the band members are like these dorky losers who get beat up by jocks and don't do well in their classes and they're not good with girls. But in their garage playing music together, all that stuff disappears and they're heroes. And even though they're not like, you know, okay, they are when they're playing music together. And I think what this music video is trying to say and like successfully says is that everybody needs music that can make you feel okay when things aren't. And My Chemical Romance wanted to be that band for people. And I think that it like did indeed register with a lot of people who saw this video and would go on to form a very close relationship to this band's music to the point where they felt like it changed their life. Yeah. This band will save your life was like a common thing thrown around about my Kim and starting in this era. And it kind of feels like related to this song. And you know, they're such big queen fans. And I wanted to read this quote from that recent queen biopic, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. Where the band are like sitting down with Littlefinger from game of Thrones. Who's playing like this A&R guy. And he asked them what's so special about queen. And they say, we're the misfits who don't belong together playing to the other misfits, the outcasts right at the back of the room who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. And like, that's my chemical romance for me in a nutshell. I just got chills when you said that because I resonated with it so hard. Right? Like, that's 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 MCR, man. I mean, they are the misfits playing for the other misfits. I, I think you're right. I think they really nailed that feeling of, look, no one is okay, and that's okay. But when you're listening to us, we want you to feel okay, and that's the kind of band we want to be for you. Exactly. You know who thinks this song fucking sucks, though? I don't know, some lame person who I need to beat up? Who? Alex Saavedra. That doesn't shock me. Of Eyeball Records. Literally at all. <laughs> Towards the end of that documentary, uh, Things That Make You Go, mm, he talks about how they played him like some early version of this, and he was like, man, that song blows. And like, apparently, like the way he tells it, which, you know, that's, it's important to remember that this is the way he tells it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Gerard's feelings were like really hurt by that to the point where he eventually backpedaled and was like, oh, it's just because I heard an early version. It's actually a good song. But I, I think he still, I think he like, it wouldn't surprise me to this day. He thinks this song sucks. To be fair, it's not post-hardcore at all no this is a punk to pop punk it feels like a brit pop track is what it feels like this could be like a pulp or a blur song or something yeah like straight up to that like up to that guitar solo well and if it was like a little poppier and a little less raw i could hear fallout boy playing a similar song sure i could see that too like it wouldn't be as good if fallout boy did this song but it's it feels more in line with emo than it does post-hardcore yeah and alex Vedra is the head of a post-hardcore record label so i kind of get that but also he's dumb yeah what's your favorite moment in the music video i wanted to ask you this my favorite moment it's tough like uh obviously the kiss is a big one uh-huh that's great iconic um but my favorite moment has got to be in its final closing seconds where the band are like walking out of the garage and gerard shoots one of them a look and points his finger at him meaningfully with his thumb extended like you did a fucking great job today, buddy. Yeah. You killed it out there. That's great. I do love that part. I, I don't know. There's a couple parts. I'd like to give an honorable mention to the uh, interlude when Frank is with the cheerleader <laughs> and is like, you know, you have something in your eye. Yeah. And then wipes it on her. 
and walks away. Oh yeah, well, he wipes it on her and he walks away. That's great. That's like an honorable mention, but I think my favorite part is when Mikey walks into the stall in the bathroom, unzips his pants, and then a girl just like comes out. That always kind of bothered me as a kid. Creeped me out. I, it bothered me as a kid, but as an adult, somehow it's my favorite part. I don't know why. It's just like, it's the part that gets me like laughing the hardest. <laughs> sure. Which it feels like kind of what the song wants you to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can't say enough. I mean, we named our podcast after this song. So clearly it's an important song to us. Of course, we have to mention the intro too. You like D&D, Audrey Hepburn, Fangoria, Harry Houdini, and Croquet. You can't swim, you can't dance, and you don't know karate. Face it, you're never going to make it. I don't want to make it. I just want So good. I remember sitting there as a kid going, well, at least I know how to swim. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know karate is such like a Wes Anderson line for me. Like this whole video feels like, re- like I got very strong Wes Anderson vibes from it. Yes. I used to watch recreations of this music video too, where like, like teenage girls would try and recreate this whole music video at their high school. <laughs> okay. And like, it was a whole little like, sub sub genre that i used to be into when i was in middle school michael McGrawman's video recreations yeah did you see any high school girls try and reenact the uh, ghost of you video because i feel like that would have been hilarious no but now i want to go google that before we start talking about ghost of you i wanted to ask you a very important question mm-hmm. uh what do you like better i'm not oh fucking k or i'm really not okay i'm not oh fucking k I like I'm really not okay. Interesting. Maybe it just feels like this song needs a fucking in it. It makes the song PG-13 because there's only one F word in it. And that just feels so very like perfect for this song. That's true. But I don't know. There's something about really where it's like kind of underselling it, but trying to sell it at the same time. Like I'm really not okay. It's definitely one of my favorite versions of a radio edit. And I like that there it is like, a different word instead of just bleeping it. And I've always appreciated that. Yep, me too. Yeah. But when I sing the song, it's I'm not a fucking K. Maybe it's just because I've, I've, I've seen the music video so many times, but it's always going to be really not okay for me. Yeah, that, that's fair. Let's get on to this next song, The Ghost of You. This was another big single with another big music video. Really? It's definitely, I think, the weakest of the big three, and it, it's my least favorite video. Although I did hear around the time that it came out that it was like the most expensive music video made since Michael Jackson's Thriller. That's fascinating. I have found an appreciation of this song as an adult. I really like that in the music video, Mikey gets to be the hero. That's probably my favorite part. Yeah, that is pretty good. The music video, we should say, is like this big dramatic reenactment of d-day kind of like the opening scene of saving private ryan Mm -hmm. where like half of it is the band performing and like yeah it's like a uso kind of yeah 
that that kind of thing. Gerard kind of looks like Elvis. It's pretty good. Yeah. And then it keeps inter like it has all these cuts interspersed with them as soldiers like landing at the beach of Normandy, and they die one by one, and they're all fading out of existence, kind of like an Infinity War. Yeah, it is very like that. Yeah. Apparently, they filmed this or were coming up with the concept while on tour with Green Day. And Gerard pitched this music video to Billy Joe Armstrong, and they had just finished recording Wake Me Up When September Ends. Which is, I hate that video. I hate that video, and I hate that song. Like you, I've grown to appreciate that song as an adult, but I still fucking hate the video. That vi- And apparently Billy Joe Armstrong was really worried when he first heard the concept that it was going to be too similar to their video. And it was going to be really obvious that they were on tour together and that they were, like, sharing ideas. Okay. But then he saw the video and was like, nah, it's way different and really good. Way better, dude. Sorry. Yeah, also way better. But, God, Wake Me Up With September Ends is a bad song. And I think I have a, I have another reference to it later in my notes. I've, I've never, yeah, I've, this has never been one of my favorites on the album. I think it's solid. I think, like, I feel like everything it does well is done a little better in Helena, specifically. Uh-huh. Like, it does another thing where it's kind of, like, a little restrained in the verses and then it really comes crashing in for the choruses and it works but just not as well as on that song it really works but there are two slow songs on this album and this is the one i like less of the two i do really like how this album is structured which is like sort of pretty much all up songs but then the penultimate song of side a and the penultimate song of side b are both the down songs and i really like the placement of The Ghost of You and later Cemetery Drive. It's a really strong album dynamically and super easy to get through in one sitting. Like, yeah, it's short, so that helps, but it's also just always keeping you moving from one thing to the next in a way that really works. Absolutely. I don't know how this song really connects to the narrative. I mean, I guess I do, based on the fact that he's just, like, kind of missing her. Yeah, I think there are... There are plenty of lines that you can vaguely connect to the plot. It's just so tied to the music video for me in my head that it's hard to tear it from that, I guess. I think probably my favorite thing about this song is Gerard's, like, crooner voice. Like, I never said I'd lie in wait forever. Like, it really feels like he's doing, like, an affectation that really lands pretty well for me. I agree. I really do like this song now. It's not a song I would ever skip now. Um, And... It's definitely one of the songs that I'll go seek out on its own, which I can't say for every song on this album. Something else I wanted to mention is that like the the Spotify version of this album uses the single edit instead of like the one that leads into the Jet Set Life, which is a shame because I love that transition. It's one of my favorite transitions on a MyChem album. You know what? I never realized that, but now that you've said it, I'll never unhear it. And I'm very sad about that. The transition is so good. Yeah, it's really good. And I now miss that. Let's transition into talking about the Jet Set Life though.
in case you're not sensing a trend on this album, I really love the imagery in the intro to this song. Everything about the beginning of the song is really good, I think. Like, I love the way the organ comes up from the end of Ghost of You, and then Otter's drumming kind of fades up in the mix, and then the rest of the band come in. And, like, the production, like, on the guitars in the first verse are also something that I've always really enjoyed, because they're a lot cleaner and more fluid than like the rest of the distorted guitars on this song. Like this is one of the few songs I think where the verses are actually better than the choruses. I really like this one's verses. Uh-huh, I would agree with that. I will say though on the surface this song kind of falls into the trap of like being kind of samey as some of the other songs on this record for me. I could see that. Like I regularly forget which ones the Jets of Life's Gonna Kill You and which ones Never Told You What I Do for a Living. Similar titles kind of. Yeah, and they kind of they both have kind of similar feels. So it makes it sort of towards the bottom on this record. But again, I love this record, so a song towards the bottom is still a song I really like. Totally. This was actually one of the bigger revelations for me revisiting the album to prepare for this episode, though. Like, I think this, it's a very strong contender for my favorite bridge on the album. Okay. There's another track that goes a little farther than this one, but the bridge, everything from pull the plug, like all through that, like slip into the tragedy part where like they even throw a little bit of auto tune on his voice during the bridge. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh It creates a really cool little effect there and it really builds up really, really well to that last chorus like some of the other tracks do i do really like the structure of all the songs on this album and i definitely love this song you know as a part of the whole i think this is also one of the tracks that where you can really accuse the band of like glamorizing suicide yeah because like that give up get down refrain that they keep doing is like i'm not gonna say it makes suicide sound cool but it makes suicide sound kind of cool. Yeah, I, I can get that. Like, it almost feels like the mid-2000s emo take on Timothy Leary's classic, like, turn on, tune in, and drop out slogan. Yeah. And, like, contrary to that, though, I, I read that the band would, like, during the Three Cheers tour, they would frequently, like, in between songs, go on little, do, like, little monologues about, like, anti-suicide stuff, and they would, like, give out the, like, uh, suicide hotline number. Yeah, I've heard stuff like that, and like I've heard stories of when they were going tour, and Gerard would just be like, "Yeah, you know, sometimes when you're when you're playing on stage, or if you're playing like on TV, you just need to like look at the audience or look at the camera and smile, and just remind people that it's good to smile and that everything's going to be all right." I have a quote from him about looking at the audience, where he said, uh, "We always turn the house lights up during Our Lady of Sorrows because it's a special song to us, and we want to take a moment, whether the crowd hates us, loves us, or is throwing beer at us." I did that on this tour, and I saw someone in the crowd who was completely cut up, arms all over. That changed everything right then, and I'm worried that people might think that they have to do something like that to come to one of our shows, that they have to go through that in order to fit in. I would hate to think that there's anything about this band that would encourage anyone to do that to themselves. I've always personally felt very much that this band was anti-self-harm, and it was always sort of something I was pretty militant about when people would accuse them of being like, promoting self-harm or being like emo in the sense of like that means you cut yourself i mean gerard even says it on a later song singing songs that make you want to slit your wrists just isn't very fun right and it's like a lot of people just hear the fact that they mentioned slitting your wrist in a song and that makes it okay and i'm like that's not really what they're about they're about the opposite of that like as as much as some of the bands of this era did glamorize suicide i think the message of the band was clear yeah i totally agree this is also a pretty, pretty solid side A closer. Yeah, I think so too. Shall we go on to uh, Interlude? 
I don't have a lot to say about this song, but I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like it could have been stitched into Thank You for the Venom, but Thank You for the Venom was apparently a big UK single, so I get why they didn't stitch it together. Interesting. I like this as like a kind of silent prayer you would say to yourself as you're walking into like a gunfight that you think you might lose. Yeah. Saint Protector now, come angels of the Lord, come angels of unknown. I have some weird mental block for this song too, where it's like, I don't really need to know what he's saying. And like, anytime I look it up, I never really commit it to memory. His vocals are pretty cool, though, on this track. They remind me a lot, actually, of Tom York from Radiohead. I can totally get that. I could see Gerard feeling that way, too. He's he's doing the same thing where he's like singing very beautifully, but at the same time, he's kind of singing like a dying cat. He's straddling that line for sure. And I like that as a, you know, 30 second or however long it is song to open side B. And yeah, I don't really need to know what he's saying to know I like how it transitions into the next song, Thank You for the Venom. one's pretty cool not never a big favorite of mine but i think it's a a strong solid cut there's one guy in that documentary who says like this is the song that saved this album for him i kind of get that it's the most bullets song in my opinion it is it's the most straightforward like punky one which i kind of like about it pretty sure this one was like their biggest song in europe because probably just because it was a european single it did reach number 71 in the uk charts like this was a big song for them in this era and I feel like actual MyChem fans I knew cited this as like their favorite one because it was sort of like the hardest. It felt very like bullets hard, but well produced to fit on this record. It's the least flashy, you know, yeah. it's like they pull out the least tricks. It's kind of the most just like straight, like, let's do a good song. Yeah. Also, a little fun fact for you. The opening line, Sister, I'm not much a poet, but a criminal, is a reference to the Morrissey song, Sister, I'm a Poet. Of course. Sister, I'm a... Really good. Yeah, which is interesting. Apparently, uh, Gerard and Mikey sort of thought Mike Hemp should be if Morrissey was the lead singer of The Misfits. I think that's perfect. Yeah, and this song kind of feels like that. Uh, Mike Hem would cover like a Morrissey song live, I think. They would do Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Which is a good fit for them. Yeah, and they would also cover a Misfits song around this uh astro zombies right yeah i have a little bit about that at the end that's a good cover i like that one a lot i think it was in like a skating video game or something wasn't it okay yeah i'm just gonna say it all right now then because it was in tony hawk's american wasteland and i love that video game hell yeah it was you could set songs on repeat so i would just leave their version of astro zombies on repeat and like skate around what song did i leave on repeat in the tony hawk game i played i think it was like all My Best Friends Are Metalheads by Less Than Jake or something. Solid. Tony Hawk, come be on the show. <laughs> so I think this is like pretty clearly about Gerard's like substance abuse problems. Uh, yeah. You think? Yeah. Like, I, I know he thought that like he had to like be like drunk and high to like be the leader of My Chemical Romance. And this really feels like him trying to reconcile like everybody asking him to be the leader of this emo movement with having to do these horrible things to himself in order to do that. So it's like, okay, I can do this, 
but it's going to destroy me. And, you know, that's, like, unsustainable. Definitely. I kind of feel like it doesn't age that well for that reason. Like, it's the song that most feels like it is okay to just be punk rock and do drugs. I, I just... I. Not sure if I get that message from it. You know, it feels like the complicated relationship and how afraid he is of that relationship is built into the song. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. He's equating it to like, hey, if that's what you want, fire at will. You know, like, so you're going to have to like fucking kill me if that's what you want. Because that's what this is going to do. I guess I should rephrase to mean it's the one that's most easily misconstrued as promoting it. I could see that. Yeah. It's still a banger, though. And it's a it's a pretty solid punk anthem. Whenever someone would be like, My Chemical Romance isn't punk, what the fuck are you talking about? I'd be like, uh, listen to Thank You for the Venom, because that's a pretty punk rock song. I really love the climax when they're doing that fire at will backing vocal like under the chorus that's going on. I think it really builds up to some pretty powerful energy. Yeah, it's a very energetic song. It's definitely one I could imagine like losing my shit over if I was in the audience during this era. I can't remember if they played this song when i saw them live anymore it would be a good killjoys track i could see it translating pretty well yeah definitely fortunately like gerard's struggles with addictions had like a fairly happy ending because i know he did he would like have minor relapses in the future i think but towards the end of 2004 he did decide to get sober and like seek help for his problems yeah and he he's pretty much remained like at least publicly sober Yep. Since then, I don't know if he's had any relapses in the years since then, but overall... I think I saw some interviews where he talked about, like, relapsing for, like, a, a minute in, like, 2013 or something. I don't really know that well. Well, it would make sense, like, especially, like, when the band was falling apart. Yeah. I could see that. Uh-huh. But I've also read places where he can kind of socially drink or, like, casually drink without feeling like he has to get totally shit-faced, which is, like, a, you know, healthy place to be. That's a good place to be, yeah. There was a great little section of that book I read about him getting sober, though, where he says he checked in to see his therapist, who told him, when you leave here, you're going to go buy Brian Eno's Music for Airports, and it's going to calm you the fuck down. Gerard recalled in an interview with Entertainment Weekly's Whitney Pasterick, I had a bottle of vodka in the trunk just in case, and I listened to the album in a parking lot, and felt a lot better. So I threw the bottle out and went to AA. All right. That's a great story. If you've never listened to Music for Airports, it's a great album to get sober to. I haven't, but now I'm going to. I recommend it to everybody. All right, shall we do Hang em High? Sure. Not one of my favorites. Actually, like, I would cut this song. I wouldn't cut this song. If I was going to cut a song, I probably would go back and cut Jet Set, honestly. Ooh, I love Jet Set, though, Ben. Look, I like Jet Set also. But if you were like, hey, you have to cut a song, it might be uh, it might be a different song, actually. But Hang em High, I really like. I am still very sad there's not, like, a Western-themed music video for this song. I'm not. I don't need it. I don't think I need a Western-themed my chemical romance song in fact like i can buy the boys as criminals and prep school kids and even dead world war ii veterans but i think like playing cowboys might be my limit it's i just can't take this seriously i feel like them not selling it at all is would be part of it for me yeah like, in my head i have this whole music video of like the boys as like these anti-hero bandits fighting a corrupt sheriff like 
almost in a very like danger days way but i've always felt this way like since i was a kid and they like all of them are just wearing their three cheers outfit except gerard adds a cowboy hat and like that's the only difference is that gerard has a big white cowboy hat that's what i want for this music video i just think it'd be really fun and funny and like they could have leaned into making it really silly it wouldn't really fit with the tone of the other three music videos. It might have been a nice compliment to those. You know, those are all... I'm not, I'm not okay as in serious, but, like, having, like, Helena and Ghost to be followed by a dumb cowboy goof around could have been fun. Yeah, I feel like maybe I only like this song for the instrumental intro. With the whistling? Yeah. It's really interesting. I just feel like I only like the whistling on this song, but it's enough to save it from the cutting room floor. I like parts of it. Like, I like the energy, and I like all this. George really pulls out his demon voice to do some screaming at points. He definitely does, but he does that on other songs, too. Yeah. And now that I'm, like, examining it, like, in podcast therapy with you... (laughs) It's maybe just the whistling that I really like on this song. (laughs) A little whistling goes a long way. It does. But it's a good one. It's not one I would personally get rid of. This next song, I might get rid of. What? Yeah. You would get rid of It's Not a Fashion Statement, It's a Fucking Death Wish. Okay, well, fun story about this podcast. This podcast was almost named It's Not a Fashion Statement, It's a Fucking Podcast. Which is still, I think, a pretty good title. It's a viable title. Ben, this is my second favorite song on the record. Is it? Wow. Yes, it's so good. It is really good. How do you not like this? I don't dislike this. I just, it's at the bottom of the list. Like, I wouldn't cut any of these songs. It's a pretty short album. But it's also 13 tracks, and if you wanted to, like, whittle it, if you were, like, trying to whittle it down to 10, it's the one I would leave on the cutting room floor. You know who else's favorite song this is? According to Twitter. Okay. Gerard Way. Look, it's a very Gerard Way title. You'd cut Gerard's favorite song. Definitely needs the fucking in the title, I think. Yeah, I like the fucking in the title, too. I think that's pretty, pretty essential. But, man, everything about this one, that, that intro where he's like, For what you did to me, and what I'll do to you. You get what everyone else gets. You get a lifetime. Which is also, I would not be shocked to learn, is a reference to Neil Gaiman's Sandman. I also read that. I thought that was an intentional reference. Oh, I wasn't sure. I didn't actually read that. I just, that's one of my, the things I really like about Sandman is that quote. Something that I feel like might play into a reason why this doesn't quite get there for you is that this was like the first song they wrote for the album, allegedly. Like, just a few weeks after they finished wrapping up Bullets. Yeah, interesting. Maybe. I think that shows, too, because, like I, like I mentioned earlier, this is the song that I see depending the least on the big hook formula 
that so many of these other songs have going on. After the second chorus, they kind of hit this bridge, and they never really return to the, anything from the first parts of the song. It just goes off in an entirely different direction, and I love that. The second half of this song is like a fucking marathon. Like, it's the most like energy I think is on the record, and I'm totally breathless by the end of it. It just keeps like pulling out new elements, and I love it. I feel like I maybe like the second half of the song better. I literally did just pull up the lyrics just to look at it. Yeah, it takes the first half to really take off, but once it gets there, it never stops going. I definitely agree with that, and I like this song. There isn't a song I skip on this record when I listen to it all the way through, and I like this one a lot. It's not one I go out of my way to listen to on its own, and, you know, if you're forcing me to whittle this down to 10, which no one is, it's one of the ones I would leave on the cutting room floor. It feels so important, though, for me. Like, conceptually, this feels like the climax of the story where the demolition lover is, like, killing whoever killed him and his wife the first time. Mm -hmm. Like, it's got lyrics about, like, the hole you put me in wasn't deep enough. I'm coming back from the dead. You're running out of places to hide from me. And it has a very important lyric, too, I think, where, like, you know, this album doesn't have, like, a title track, but I feel like this song does nod to the title of the record, with this lyric uh, from the second verse where Gerard goes, hip, hip, hooray for me, Mm -hmm. which I think like plays a pretty big role in why this song strikes me as the climax of the album, because considering the title of the album is three cheers for sweet revenge, it feels like the protagonist has become revenge, you know, like hip, hip, hooray for me. Like the theme is finally fully realized in a way that it hasn't been before this point. And it it like reminds me of that Oppenheimer quote about the atomic bomb. Okay. I have become death destroyer of worlds. Or I guess like the three cheers equivalent would be, I have become revenge, destroyer of you. Yeah, that feels right. And I like that about it. Again, I feel like you think I hate this song. I don't think you hate it. But I mean, like, I would never dream of cutting this one. It just, it's so high up there for me. Yeah, I feel that. It's just one of those ones that kind of bleeds into the album as a whole more than some of the other ones do for me. Something I really like about the second half of it is that like it kind of transitions subtly from being really violent and bloodthirsty to being really romantic and sentimental. Mm-hmm. Like it starts with those lyrics, the hole you put me in wasn't deep enough and I'm climbing out right now. You're running out of places to hide from me. And then it goes into like, when you go, just know that I will remember you. If living was the hardest part, one day we'll be together. And in the end, we'll fall apart just like the leaves changing colors and then I will be with you. I will be there one last time. And it really like illustrates this weird theme that the album kind of plays with, where it treats like killing as an act of love. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's killing people, but it's because he loves this person and he wants them back. And I love the last lyric too. I've lost my fear of falling. I will be with you. I will be with you. Yeah. No, I do really love that, the way this song ends. Gets me on the edge of my seat, man. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like the second half is such a marathon and i do find myself just like belting out the lyrics i will be with you like yep that's me every time i listen to the song so all in all it's a great fucking song really good my number two on the album cool i really like that it's your number two on the album it feels so essential what do you think of this next song though cemetery drive my number two on the album Your husband hates Way down 
Nice. I was expecting you to really like this one. And I think it's got some of the strongest stuff going on in the record. Like, it's got another really strong, powerful, emotive, like, evocative first verse. Uh, it's so good. It's so Sid and Nancy, which is a really cool little, like, reference. It's so... I think it's about the Bullets tour and just how hard it was, but also good for them in a way. I could see that. There's a live version where he's like, this song is about the longest drive me and my brother Mikey ever fucking took. And I think it's about that. Totally. It's the um, Life on the Murder Scene live version of this song. All that being said, I do think it has one of the weaker choruses on the album. Yeah. As much as I like the verses and everything going on in there, the chorus has always fallen a little flat for me. It's not my favorite chorus, but the verses elevate it so much. This is the one I pull most regularly to just be like, I want like a nice, like chill My Chem song right now. Sure. It's one of the few ones out there, kind of. Yeah. And I love it for it. And... I would pick this song over Ghost of You like pretty much any day of the week. Okay. Yeah, they're they're very close for me. I don't know which one I would give the edge to, but this one I think the lyrics are probably stronger. Definitely. And even though the chorus, like you said, isn't their strongest on the album, the imagery from that opening that you just recited, it just like is so quintessentially like something I like whispered to myself while getting ready in the morning from like the ages of 13 to 23. Totally. Yeah, I would say like more than any other lyrics on the album, maybe this one gets stuck in my head. Yeah, it gets extra points for catchiness in my book. And before we stop talking about the album, I want to give one last shout out to Otter because I think his drums on this song are fantastic. Yeah, I meant to do that. I forgot to put it in my notes, but his drums at the beginning of this song are so good. Some of my favorite drums in a My Chem song. Yeah, they're integral to this song and therefore integral to the band. <laughs> I mean, yep, very important. You got anything more to say uh, about this one before we move on to the last track? No, let's talk about I Never Told You What I Do for a Living. Max of the whole record. This is a good one. Yeah, it's a really good one. My favorite part is sort of the end of it, though. So why don't why don't you talk first? There are so many different. It feels like it really does go through several movements more so than like a lot of the other tracks on the album. Yeah, but yeah, this really does feel like the climax of the whole concept coming to an end, and it's like it feels like one of the more like brutal songs on the album too. Like they really pull out like all all the stops for this one yeah definitely gerard's demon voice comes out a lot he does a lot of tortured screaming yeah and i just feel like this song works really well like and that's i guess like it feels sort of similar to jet set but it feels like it, it just gets tied a little tighter which is also interesting just because jet sets the side a closer and this is the side b closer the album closer Uh uh-huh yeah it does this interesting thing that a lot of songs by another band i really like say anything do which is sort of like by the end of the song you feel like you're listening to a different song than when you started totally yeah like i said it feels like it has movements and that's definitely something i really really appreciate about this song 
I just love how much it just sort of ties the bow on the song and the story and just like it really does sort of cap this era. So how do you think the story ends? Do you think the Demolition Lover and the other Demolition Lover are reunited by Satan in the end? Um, I think they decide to stay dead but get to go to heaven. Let me tell you the way I've always seen this story ending. I think some of this is maybe based on some stuff Gerard has said in interviews, but I can't like point to any of them specifically. I see the Demolition Lover having killed like 999 evil men. Mm-hmm. And the twist at the end, because this is a deal with the devil after all, is that the final evil man that he has to kill is himself. Yeah. And he decides to do it so that his lover will be resurrected. And he dies and she comes back to life. And she doesn't know what's going on. And the devil appears to her and he's like, hey, your lover's dead. But guess what? I can bring you back to life if you kill a thousand evil men for me. And I'll even throw in your boyfriend too if you finish the job. And so it's kind of like a never ending cycle where the devil just has like these two people killing thousands of evil men for him so that they can reunite with each other. But the last person in the cycle is always themselves. So they never get to do it. I really like how fucking dark that is. I just have never seen a happy ending to the story, I guess. That's fair. I I feel like I don't necessarily hear a happy ending when I listen to the album, but I know the band so well that I feel like it needs a happy ending in a way. And it needs like a bittersweet dark ending, but that one that's not like a super downer. I also just want to give one more shout out in this song to just the way it ends. And then it's like that really long, like it sounds like they just dropped all their instruments and walked away with their amp still on. And such a great way to end this album. It's, it just really reminds me of what you said your favorite moment in the I'm Not Okay music video was when they're like walking out and they're just like, you killed it, bud. Like, I almost feel like they're playing this song when they walk out of the garage in a, in a weird way. And I just always liked that image of them walking out of the garage and Gerard doing that exact thing you mentioned earlier, but just at the end of this song. I would do it to him too, because I think they all killed it. I mean, this is a fantastic record and yeah, probably still my favorite My Chemical Romance album to this day. It's a good choice for favorite. And it's probably, I don't know. I don't know if it if I like Bullets better. I it, it changes so regularly for me on whether this or Bullets is my second favorite. I feel like there's such a part of me that's like, oh, of course Three Cheers is great, but I've grown to love Bullets so much. So it's like I had to work harder so I appreciate Bullets more. Yeah, Bullets has had to fight a little more. I do really love this album. And I guess... Whenever I say Bullets is better, it's because I have such a nostalgia I like can't divorce myself of for this album. It, it almost gets in the way. Yeah. It'd be interesting to be able to listen to it again with fresh ears. That would be fascinating. Let's also talk about a couple of the um, bonus songs that were on Life on the Murder Scene that were like deleted songs. Sure, I didn't really go back and listen to any of these, but I know there's there's a couple, right? What ones did you find? Well, so there's that Astro Zombies cover, which isn't on Life on the Murder Scene. It's just like a song that was floating around. There's the Under Pressure one, which we talked about. Right. Then there's uh, Bury Me in Black. Right, I remember this one. And that feels like a song that would have made it on the album if they didn't have a producer going, no, it doesn't fit with your album. Like, it just doesn't fit on Three Cheers, but it's such a banger. Uh-huh. Like, it feels like a Bullet song, not a Three Cheers song, and that's why it never got on. But this song fucks. <laughs> like, the line, my gun fires seven different shades of shit, so what's your favorite color, punk? Is just, like, it's so punk. Very good. Very good. Very Gerard. Yes. It's it's a song I like almost wish they could have found a way to put on the album, but I kind of like it that it's just like 
hidden secret. I almost like wish they would have re-recorded it or something for conventional weapons. Yeah. Like that line really screams conventional weapons to me. Yeah, it felt like it could have fit there too. And then the other one was um, Desert Song, which is like kind of low-key my least favorite MCR song anyway. I remember listening to this one as a teenager and not really being blown away. Like I didn't feel like this was a keeper. This is where I was going to, I said, wake me up when September ends comes on or would come back because I feel like there's an alternate timeline where this was a super big song, just like wake me up when September ends was. And I'd have to put up with everyone being like, oh, I love my camp. Desert song is so great. Like I did with Green Day where people were like, oh, I love Green Day. Wake me up when September ends is great. And I'm like, Green Day is great, but that song sucks. Yeah. And my chem is great. And I don't love this song. But it was just a B-side. So, you know, who cares? Yeah. So I guess just to like wrap up this album discussion, I kind of just compare it to Bullets. And Bullets is like so raw and it's like accidental in a good way. And this this album feels kind of one note. It's very like static. All the songs kind of fall together, which makes sense given like how they wrote the songs, like learning about song structure. Yep. But it just comes together in such a tight way. And it was so important and so influential. They're so good. Yeah, Bullets feels like it kind of stretches out a little bit more, but this is more of a concentrated burst. And I like that a lot. It it really fits this like era of the band where they really were starting to become that kind of like, I think you mentioned it last episode, that like violent pop kind of band. Yeah, definitely. Like dangerous pop. Yep. Just like There's a part of like uh, that documentary, Things That Make You Go, mm, where one of their old friends says like, My Kamoko Romance are like, the music that the black clad teenagers in high school are listening to. And this is where it feels like they really became that group. Definitely. And they also feel like it feels very Bowie now that I know a lot more about Bowie. Like in the way that punks used to really like Bowie, even though he wasn't always the most punk artist, but they just like saw themselves in this weirdo on stage. This album feels very similar to that where it's like, even though they would drift away from this look that really kind of embodied the punk look, this feeling would always be who their fans were. Totally. And they would really drift away from this kind of look, but that's a discussion for our next episode, Black Parade. Let's uh, wrap this one up though. Uh, do you want to, I don't know, do you want to say where people can find us and stuff? We have a Twitter, uh, which is, I haven't been on it forever, but I believe the handle is not okay podcast. It, yeah, I believe it is too. And please follow us there. We're going to be more active now. We're going to like make more episodes more frequently. I promise. <laughs> yeah, it is not going to be another year between episodes. Uh, I say, hopefully the next episode doesn't start with us going like, hey, I'm Trevor. Hey, I'm Ben. We're both 50 years old. Uh, let's talk about the Black Parade. Yeah, hopefully not. I think we're both sort of much more settled in our lives than we were. It's hard making podcasts. Yeah, and you're such a podcast mogul. <laughs> hard for you to make time for me but i'm real i'm really glad i've done this second episode uh me too speaking about recording michael McGromance podcasts i wanted to like give a shout out and apologize if we like explicitly ripped off any talking points or jokes from the other my chemical romance podcast my chemical fan cast which has popped up in our absence ben have you like given that a listen yet i like really wish i could tell you i have because i i like to think that they're really nice guys but i haven't it's two girls um they're really great uh i've listened to a couple episodes about they've taken like a different approach to us where they're like really doing deep dives so every album gets like several episodes where they only talk about a couple tracks like they're clearly bigger my chemical romance nerds than we are cool. and it kind of gives me a little bit of peace of mind knowing that somebody is out there 
doing like a really exhaustive show. So like we can kind of, I don't know, take it easy and just be a little more casual about it. I like that. I do really like that. I like that. There's like both kinds of people out there talking about my chemical romance. Um, and I, you know what, I'll make a promise right now. I'll check out some of their episodes and, and give them a like and a follow on social media and stuff because we're all fighting a good fight. Absolutely. But this brings me to something else that I wanted to talk about at the end of the show here. I was listening to one episode they did about Vampires Will Never Hurt You. And, you know, there's a classic story behind that album where head of Eyeball Records, our good friend Alex Saavedra, punches Gerard in the face and tells him, like, you can do this, buddy, and gives him a motivational punch in the face as hard as he can. And that kind of unlocks his talent. You know, you remember us talking about that on our Bullets episode. Yep, definitely. Which is very anime now that I think about it. <laughs> sure. But when My Chemical Fancast touched on this story, from, from their telling of it, the album's producer, that guy from Thursday, is the one who punched Gerard in the face. Mm-hmm. Jeff Rickley, I believe is his name. Yeah. They said he was the one. Interesting. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying I'm not sure if I believe Alex Saavedra anymore no that interview that he gave was from what like 2004 or something yeah i can clearly see somebody talking to the dude from thursday in an interview where like yeah i i heard that you produced my chemical romance's first album and those sessions got pretty crazy like alex saavedra says that he even punched gerard in the face and i could see the dude from thursday going like alex said what no i i punched gerard in the face that was me i believe if you check the tape i called alex saavedra a quote an unreliable narrator yeah yeah you said he likes to blow up the truth there's a quote from that book you really like about vietnam yeah the things they carry that you said fits him i wish i could remember what it was can you remember what it is you don't tell how the story happened you tell how the story felt it happened right and you like embellish the truth just to make it so that the listener feels it to the extent that you felt it so if evidence has come to light in the last however many years that it was actually thursday dude who punched gerard in the face and Alex was just telling a tale, please get in touch with us. In fact, like, Alex, if you want to come defend yourself on the show, I'd be happy to have you on so we could do an interview and really get to the truth of what happened in those sessions. Alex Vedra, you have an open invitation on our show, and I promise we will treat you very nicely. Absolutely. Um, Ben, where can people find you on Twitter? People can find me on Twitter and Instagram at bhpit. Yeah, I post uh, pretty irregularly, and it's usually pictures of my cat or my fish. Great. And people can find me on Twitter at uh, Trevor Ickrath with all the vowels taken out. So it's T-R-V-R-K-R-T-H. Thanks for listening, guys. Trevor, I'm so happy to be back. Me too. It feels really good to have gotten this episode done. I can't wait till it's out there and people can see it. It's going to be really exciting. But now all that's left to do is say goodbye. So hey, uh, what's your name? I'm Ben Pitt. I've been Trevor Ickrath. And we are still not okay. So long and good night. Hey!